Someone who's been around for a while reminded me that this probably is the 27th talk of this sort that I've given, in other words, the last 27 thanks, thanksgiving, giving thanks. There's a lot of it tomorrow, too. Gratitude. The rest of the year, we don't care about anything. <laughs> Everyone out for themselves. Uh, I don't know if it's how many years it's been done, but I've been doing it for many years. And I always volunteer for it. Most people don't want to give the talk this evening because they're on their way somewhere. Um, it's the only American holiday that made sense to me growing up. Not necessarily because of the pilgrims and uh, all the turkeys are being killed, but there was something about it that I liked. Uh, because I grew up in a community of Russian Jewish immigrants and uh, Christmas meant nothing, Halloween meant nothing. I never even heard of Halloween too many years later. Uh, now Hanukkah is up there on the marquee, but it was a, a very low-key um, event. Uh, and in terms of a holiday that got a lot of promotion, most of, most of them didn't seem, I couldn't relate to them authentically. For some reason, Thanksgiving was one because the whole family came together, good food, extended family, lots of laughter and warmth. And so that has stayed with me. Um, what I've been trying to do for all these years is each year pick a different, uh, well, what am I grateful for, but try to make it relevant for our practice, for Dharma. In other words, it's not just, it's not really, I'm not, it's not so much about me. Uh, it, inevitably, it has to be to some degree, of course. But some aspect of Dharma that might be valuable for all of us. A few years ago, I did one just on breathing in and breathing out. I took up the whole, I think it was about an hour. Uh, because on my own then, I never would have thought that just being aware of breathing could have such a profound impact on consciousness. Uh, how could that occur to me? It was so simple, so even simple-minded, uh, not realizing all the implications of it. So I was very—I I went on and on about that. Uh, tonight, well, I'm always grateful to my parents. I was fortunate that I had two very loving parents. Uh, I remember one of the first things, perhaps the first thing I read in the Buddhist literature about gratitude was about parents and it said if you carried the buddha said if you carried your parents even if you have a bad relation had a bad or have a bad relationship with your family with your parents said if you carry them on your back both of them for the rest of your life you still couldn't come close to paying them back for what they had to do for you i would add put up with to raise you um so what i thought of tonight is uh I hope it has some relevance for all of us here. It's not just about the story of me and my life. Uh, different teachers and not going, different teachings, uh, sort of bullets, uh, they call it that now these days, sort of like uh, that stick out, that have proven they stay with me. In fact, some of you have been around for a while, you've heard them because I repeat them over and over again because they're still with me and still helpful. Uh, the very first one <clears throat> I'd like to mention was the first teacher of 
contemplation or meditation that I had many, many years ago, long before Buddhism. And I also got involved in yoga long before that as well. And his name was uh, Krishnamurti, Jiddu Krishnamurti. He was an Indian gentleman. And he came to a university that I was teaching at. At the time, I was a professor. And uh, many things. That, that I would say it changed my life. He was there for about four or five days. And I was already headed in this direction and headed out of the university. But uh, let's say he expedited the process. Uh, <clears throat> a few of his teachings. First off, at that time, we were all extremely naive and hungry for a guru. Can any, are any of you old enough to remember that? Did you make fools out of yourself ever? Okay, I'll tell you one where I did. Um, and so we expected someone with long flowing robes, etc. Here comes this gentleman with a, a very well-tailored three-piece British gentleman suit and shoes that are shined, uh, an upright posture, and uh, quite refined with an English accent. Well, it turns out, if you know, if you know he had a bizarre bi uh, biography, much more than mine, no comparison. Um, and during the time that he was there, no one was really interested in what he had to say. This was way before some of these, now you hear mindfulness, and it's even commercials have tucked the word mindfulness in there. Um, and so, to my good, my good fortune was that no one else was interested, so I could spend a lot of time with him, take walks and uh, have meetings with him and so forth. Um, there's a lot that I could say, and I, uh, but just a few things, maybe only one, two. Uh-oh. <laughs> you know how I get, all right. <laughs> um, Upon leaving, these are not necessarily in the order that I learned them. Upon leaving, uh, uh, it was the four or five days were up, and he was heading somewhere, and um, and I've been trying to, and I, I wanted him to give me a teaching to leave, and I wanted to know what meditation was. Well, he gave me a meditation instruction. He had that was earlier in the week. He just we would take walks on campus, and there was a wooded area, and we just stopped, and he said. See if you can be quiet for five or ten minutes and just look at anything in nature and see if you can attend to it without interruption, without making ideas, naming it botanically and all the rest of it. If the thoughts come in, just don't get into a war with it. Just come back to the pure, simple observation of a leaf or a flower or bark of a tree. Whatever you pick is okay. I don't remember what I picked. I do remember, as the best I could do it, um, the simplest thing, a leaf, let's pretend, because I really don't remember, was a leaf. If you can spend some undivided time just allowing a leaf without ideas about what a leaf is and all the accumulated memories we have of it, it's a symbol of the Buddha and all that stuff. Um, towards the end of it, I felt my eyes were moist. I mean, I just felt like it was so exquisitely beautiful, and I couldn't give a reason why. And so and then he asked me, well, what did you do? And I reported to him. He said, you, you observed and you watched the leaf and you saw it very clearly. And I said, yes. And he said, okay, you want to know what meditation is? Go back to your room, sit down, watch your mind. It's the same thing. That was it. That was his, those are his instructions. Well, it's taken me 40 years. That's all I do now. <laughs> uh, but I've been through lots of techniques and retreats and forms. 
some of the ones that we subject you to when you come here. Um, upon leaving, I was pestering him. I wanted more teachings, more words to take home with me, or somebody would write in a notebook. And he said, okay, okay. He said, pay attention to how you actually live. And he, the way he said actually burned a hole. It was just, he, he had a lot of power. It was subtly delivered. It wasn't like he was trying to be powerful or anything of that sort. Intensity, let's call it. But it was very relaxed intensity. And what he said is, Pay attention to how you actually live, not how you think you live, not how you're supposed to live, not how your mommy told you to live or the rabbi or the priest told you. How do you actually live from moment to moment? <coughs> Fine, sounded okay. I didn't realize what he was getting me into. Like CIMC is based on that, quite frankly. And because that isn't limited to sitting. That's not limited to anything. Because how you actually live, well, life gets carried out in any wherever you are, there it is again. <coughs> There you are again. Uh, so it was merely everything. Um, and it took a while to realize what invaluable instructions they were, especially at a certain point I felt I needed more help than he had to offer. Uh, and that's when I was drawn to Buddhism, but we'll get to that in a moment. Um, yeah, let me, it's not going to go in any particular order. But isn't there already a teaching for you? You know, it's not just about Larry. That would be so... Uh, the teaching is pay attention to how you actually live. Reflect on that simple sentence and, and see. And don't do it like this, like with a magnifying glass or Sherlock Holmes. In a relaxed way, start being sensitive to how you actually live. Learn. Learn from the consequences of how you speak, how you keep your mind, how you behave, how you listen how you eat, there's nothing left out. And enjoy it, it's quite a fascinating process. After the self-conscious phase, at the beginning when we want to do it right and get an A plus and get a good uh, a score, you know, get, I don't know what, letter of recommendation for some, improve your job rating. Enjoy the process of it, it's another form of learning, it has no books in it. You can read books, they're great too, but this one has no books, you are the book. Because you're living and learning, living and learning, living and learning. The last time I saw him alive, 1986, was in New York City, across the street from the UN. He had just given a talk at the UN. Um, and then we, there were about five or six of us, something like that. We met for two hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon for five days. And the theme was um, fear. So at the end of that time, it's almost time for us all to go our separate ways, me to come back to Cambridge and so forth. Suddenly, he starts to, uh, uh, to give teachings that seem like, has the old man, has his trolley gone off its track? I mean, he starts talking about a jewelry shop. He says, my friends took me to a very high quality jewelry shop on Fifth Avenue or some avenue in New York during the lunch break. And he said, and I had in my hands one of the most precious jewels in the world. And we were all wondering, you know, what in the world does this have to do with anything? And he had his hands like this, and, he, and he, as if the jewel were in his hands. Can you all see me? Okay. Visually, it is important to see it. Uh, and remember, we've been discussing fear all this time. Uh, okay. 
and he, he looked, he said, I looked in it, and I saw the, the, how, it ref, uh, uh, how, light, how it reflected light and the way it was cut. And, and he went on and on with all kinds of language that I can't repeat. And he said, finally, I went so deeply into it that I went through it, and then he threw it away. And then he said, fear is that jewel. Do you understand? Fear, jewel. When you're, if you, ex is there anyone here who's never been frightened? Do we have to ex get a dictionary? <laughs> okay. Uh, but why would it be a jewel? Uh, that's, uh, in a sense, the essence of Vipassana teaching. It's the highest teaching, in my opinion. It's the simplest. When you pay attention to how you actually live, at times fear comes up. It's just a fact of life. It's not weird. Now, we have been given ways from generation to generation, it goes back, that, of ways of, of dealing with fear that don't work. We either explain it away or we change the subject, we repress it, uh, we analyze it, we drown in it. And uh, he was just looking at this jewel. Now, why would it be a jewel? Because if you can do that, and if, and if you, it doesn't have to be fear, it could be anything really, there's so much energy trapped in fear that isn't available to us for the rest of our life. That if you see it, what happens is all that energy that's been held captive in what we call fear, it's released and it's palpable. I'm not being poetic or uh, metaphysical. You can feel the difference because it's not the word F-E-A-R. That word is just a signpost. It's just a label pointing to a field of energy. and. So is mindfulness, by the way, seeing, awareness, whatever language you like. That's just a word, we have to use it. But it's energy, it's seeing energy. That touches fear energy. And, as you, and if you keep practicing this, that's what we're learning. One of the things we're learning, perhaps the hardest, but only if you don't get how vital it is. If you, think, if you don't fully allow yourself to realize that inevitably you're going to have to come to this, because everything else is helpful, but it's a Band-Aid. It's, it's in, um, indirect, necessary often. All kinds of things are helpful. But finally, it's, you get free. In other words, what the Buddhist teaching is saying is that we're held captive by our own mind, and liberation is in our own mind. And we're the ones who've, we're the ones who've put ourselves in bondage, and we're the only ones who can really liberate ourselves from bondage. Now, all kinds of people can help. Having a community, we all pull together, sit together. People, you know, blabbermouths like me can be helpful. Books. There are a lot of things useful now. Videos, DVDs, tapes, movies. But finally, if they don't get you to get to know, become intimate with your own experience, uh, you're likely to get disappointed. Now, not everyone wants to do this. If you just want to stay with the breath or metta and get very, very calm, develop that calm, it will help your life, and that's fine. I personally have no interest in pushing you into what I just said. Uh, but the degree to which, even if it's not perfect, which perhaps no one is, I don't know, uh, starting to face our life as it is, learning how to do that with small stuff. After all, even the breath is doing that. You're learning what a breath feels like in this moment. You're learning what a step feels like in this moment as you walk. And it's just generalizing that to more challenging content in a given moment. Uh, that to me, if I had to pick one teaching that stands for everything that i most deeply passionate about, I would say that's it. Because that's what's helped me the most, 
Does that mean it came easily to me? Of course not. I had the same uh, urge to avoid it, uh, switch to channel anything. You know, it's like TV in a sense. Your mind can be that way, especially as your practice becomes steady. You can develop the uh, ability to just switch to channel breath, channel metta, channel whatever you want. And you'll feel better, you'll feel calm, but it doesn't go away. The fear is just in abeyance. And inevitably, you come back and something again provokes it in life, stimulates it. So little by little, we're preparing ourselves so that the awareness is so steady, so clear. That's what we're learning. Vipassana means clear seeing insightful seeing, that no matter what turns up, the, the quality of attention is stronger than whatever comes in front of it. Now, is that true of us right now? It may not be. It probably isn't. If you're new to this, you may never come back hearing what I just said. Um, but you're learning a skill, and uh, any skill. Let's say you learn mathematics or, or writing or uh, a medical skill or dental skill or nursing or painting or dancing or cooking. You don't just get it right away. Well, this is learning about yourself. It's self-discovery. Uh, how, and it's ongoing. It goes on. There's, uh, I know in books sometimes it's neat and tidy. You go through stages and then you're completely free. Haven't seen it. Probably it's because I'm not f completely free. But I think life is messier than any of the schemes that portray it. The Buddha even says that at one point. He says... These teachings are like a map. You're in prison, and you have a map of the prison. It's not perfect, but it can help you escape. The prison is not exactly the way the map is. But without the map, you won't escape. So teachings are a bit like that, but they're, not, they're about life. They're not life. So the awareness that we're developing, it's the clear seeing that gets us free. It's the seeing. Insight. When the seeing becomes that clear, it sees through so many of the unnecessary ways in which we contribute and cre create suffering for ourselves. And so much human energy is squandered, wasted. Okay, so let's see, is that enough for Jiddu Krishnamurti? Right. Let's get on to... How I Made a Fool of Myself. Um, because at the t this was right after Krishnamurti. The, the, some of you who are younger, all these kind of teachings, yoga, vipassana, meditations, and it wasn't here yet. It would he be here in little popularized versions of it. Um, Alan Watts wrote some influential books. He had never sat in a Zen monastery in his life, but he was brilliant and a great writer, and people thought that's what Zen was. Well, I went over and lived in Korea to Zen Monastery. It, it's not exactly what Alan Watts was talking about. But his writings got us to go there. Um, so we were very, very naive and romantic. Disillusioned, you know, the Vietnam and civil rights, and you know all the things that went on. Uh, and so finally, a ray of hope. I'm going to become spiritual. The, the so-called new age, which now has old age. It's hard near the other. <laughs> But at the time, it seemed like, or drugs. I went through that too. Many of us did. That would be, you know, Alpert and Leary, who became Ramdas, Alpert. Uh, psychedelic liberation, you know, LSD will be, uh, it's nonsense. Has it proven to, to do that? 
If so, there'd be no drug addicts. Everyone who's called a drug addict would be a complete, there'd be Buddhists walking all over, all over Central Square. <laughs> they're, they're, not, they're not. They're not there. They're troubled human beings. Okay, so at a certain point, you see the limits of anything that's outside of you. In other words, uh, there's a stark message, but to me it's a wonderful message, which is we're learning how to be able to be responsible. A responsible person is somebody who's able to respond adequately to life. And uh, how can anyone do that for us? Just think about it for a moment. How can anyone do that for us? We can get help, of course. But finally, the buck stops with us. At any rate, so a man, you've all, many of you have heard the name John Kabat-Zinn. So he's been my oldest and dearest friend. We go back a half a century. And we were part of that. We were exploding with uh, energy. We were both academics at the time, but we were looking for something deeper. That was a big word. Still is, isn't it, people? Deep? Okay, it's good to be deep. Okay. So, uh, and in comes Swami Rama, as if Hollywood sent him. Long flowing robes. He had power. Deep eye, deeply set eyes. Very Indian looking in the best sense of uh, the stereotypes of what a guru should look like. Uh, upright posture. Swami Rama comes to Cambridge. And who is the two people who were the first to get there? John Kabat-Zinn and Larry Rosenberg. <laughs> and as, what's his name said? A sucker is born every day. <laughs> Barnum at Barnum, or someone said it. Who? P.T. Barnum said it, yeah. Well, two suckers were born on this day. We didn't know it at the time. We didn't know it. So he sized us up, though. He was a great businessman. He saw two professors. Hmm, get them in my fold. People will come to us, flock into the you know, hundreds, because people still thought, oh, professors going there must be terrific, because they're smart, right? Not right. Okay. <laughs> Some are, but these, these two weren't. <laughs> well, let's just say there are some people who are very, very intellectually, conceptually intelligent, but it's wisdom that we're really talking about. So, Swami Rama weaves this tapestry, says, after we, we spent time with him in the daytime, and he said, I'd like both of you to meet with me in some hotel in Wellesley. He says, at midnight tonight. Midnight. He says, uh, I can see, uh, and he said, I, I want to give you a secret Dharma teaching, and I, I don't want it to be, I want it to be in Wellesley at this hotel I'm staying at. It needs to be private. Can you make it? And could we make it? We were already there, you know. <laughs> so, so at midnight, we turn up, right? We turn up, and he takes us both, and he whispers a mantra in, in Johnny's ear. And he whispers a mantra in my ear. He's holding us both, and he says, because you two are Dharma brothers, it turned out he was correct. The man had definitely psychic powers, no question about that. Wisdom and compassion, he... <laughs> He was a liar, a cheat, you know. <laughs> the Indian police were looking for him, you know, <laughs> for bigamy. He, uh, he, uh, he had, gave himself some title, the Grand Shankaracharya of, you know, and it was not true. He was nothing. He was just a very powerful, he had had, obviously, some training. So he gave us this secret mantra. He said, you are my beloved disciples. And then he went back to, I think it was, it was Illinois somewhere, and we were electric. 
So we went back, and then we would get, and we were doing this mantra, uh, secret mantra, and then we'd get letters from him, from little notes saying, you are both my beloved, and I've given you this secret mantra that only are given to the beloved, and it's been passed down for thousands of years from one guru to another, and I see both of you, and on and on. And he says, I send you my love with every breath, and we were counting up. How many times do we breathe during a day? <laughs> Wow, that's a lot of blessings. You know, I forgot. Does anyone know? 64,000, right? Whew, are we lucky? And so we had this secret mantra. And then, you know what turns up? Uh, Woodstock. And there's Swami Satchitananda and rock and roll bands. Om Namah Shivaya, Om Namah Shivaya. That was our secret mantra. <laughs> So uh, it alerted us, it, that punctured the bubble. <laughs> Secret mantra to the beloved, you know. And it's been in movies now and TV and millions of people have our secret mantra. <laughs> Unless Swami, Ra well he's, he's gone to yogi heaven, so I don't know. It. Um, by the way, this is, John knows about it and Swami Rama, he's been incarcerated, you know, all kinds of negative things happened to him before he died. Um, so we learned to be much more careful, which was good. Um, next, let's see how we're doing. A Korean Zen master, in other words, I kept working with Krishnamurti. Uh, I kept working with him till he died. In fact, he's from the grave, he's still teaching me. Uh, of all the teachers he had, there were so many who had a good, who really helped me, but there's something in our connection that stayed with me. And he didn't care that, he didn't believe in any of the organized religions. He was not Buddhist, he was not Hindu. And he just said, it's all baloney. It's all about awareness and learning and get, getting his... So he got to the core of the Buddhist teaching, but they, he didn't offer much help. There was, he didn't promote sitting, he didn't promote retreats. He just gave you very high quality teaching and said, now do it. So it was a little bit like Beethoven saying, well, just... What are you bothering me? Just rattle off a symphony and, you know, because <laughs> he was clearly some kind of a genius. Okay. So uh, a friend of mine says there's a Korean Zen master in town. I think this, you'd really like him. He's bad. So I went to a, a Zen session, Korean, and it was true. Hit it off. And there was real help. We sat and walked. Um, and here's some of the, and I grew very close to him. I was his aide de camp, you know, he's like his attendant, I think it's called, for five very intense years, one year in Korea. And here's some of the teachings I got from him. First off, some of you who know me, I never teach with notes. Have you noticed? I haven't in many, since, the, unless I'm teaching about a sutra, then I want to have the, the best translation I have, because I want to maintain fidelity to the teachings. But other than that, I feel as, uh, the, first of all, he's the one who took, when, I, when he said, it's time for you to start teaching, he said, uh, no notes. Myself and another person were both instructed that way. And he said, you have to become like a jazz musician. Get a theme and then just blow. Get a theme and just blow, right? Well, that may sound romantic to you, but sometimes you if you don't get a theme, there's no blowing that's coming, you know? <laughs> I have sat in front of 100 people at IMS Nothing's there, you know, except anxiety. 
fear, and it didn't feel like a jewel. But anyway. <laughs> okay, and then suddenly, but then you, then you use that. You just say, oh, you just tell everyone you're frightened. There's anxiety. I don't have a theme. And suddenly, it, there is, there's the theme. In other words, life is so rich. It's, there's never a shortage of things to learn from, in my experience. So he trained me that way. And so I found it. Um, there are pros and cons to it. I'm not suggesting any of you who are teaching must do that. Uh, I feel in a certain way I'm preparing all the time. This is what my life is devoted to. Uh, not in a narrow sense of like this, but just attempting to live a conscious life. Um, it has its pluses and minuses, as some of you know. Uh, the low point once was I gave a talk on the Four Noble Truths and, dropped, and I forgot one of them. So it wound up being the Three Noble Truths, which is... <laughs> which is less to remember. <laughs> and since you're probably not going to do any of them anyway, it doesn't matter. Okay. Um, but what you get out of it is the spontaneity and the freshness. Uh, and so the way I prepare is I like to get silent before. And out of the silence, it usually comes. And um, some of the things that come out of my mouth I never heard them before either. I don't know where they're coming from. Maybe I'm being channeled. Do you think that's possible? Like, could I get on some TV shows? Right. Remember there were ch channels? What was his name? He was talking, uh, will you contact me with Aunt Mamie? She's, she says she's all right. She loves you. You're going to be all right. Don't worry about it. Oh, Von Prague, yeah. Now, I'm not saying this doesn't exist. If it does, but it's not, I don't have that skill. Not only that, that's not what real, what the Buddha was teaching. So, some of you who are new, once the Buddha was asked, why don't you supposedly have full psychic powers in addition to having fully developed freedom and wisdom and compassion? And he said, if I taught you this, if I, there are trainings for psychic powers that exist, many of them are long before the Buddha in yoga. He said, if I trained you in that, I'd be like a very bad physician who cures you from a minor ailment only to have you die from a major one. In other words, it's a waste of time. Oh, so you can read someone else's mind? Just get a computer. Isn't there enough information? Why do you want to know someone else's mind? I'll tell you why. That way you don't have to get to know your own mind. Isn't that nice? You can find fault with everyone else but numero uno. Okay. So that was one thing. Then here's another one. Very unusual teacher. This Korean, very an eccentric, and I value so much of what I learned from him. Um, it was Christmas time, and I was the only Jewish guy in the community. It's now the Cambridge Zen Center over on Auburn Street. Yeah. Then it was, we just had a rickety, a rickety old house somewhere in Cambridge, and there were four of us living there. And he would come and spend time with us every week. So uh, once a month, there's a sashin, or they, they call it something else in Korean, Yongmen uh, Jeonjin. And it's four or five days, I don't recall. And you just sit and walk from early morning to late at night, and there are interviews with the teacher. And, a do and the teacher gives a talk, and that's it. So it's sitting and walk. It's a lot of sitting, a lot of walking, and so forth. So we're a day before the retreat's supposed to happen. And I was, 
being trained to teach, and I was and, uh, so to, to help t to teach this. So uh, I say, Sansanim, that was his name, Sung Sansanim. I said, uh, no one signed up. It was Christmas, and everyone, no one. I said, so we'll just cancel, right? And he said, wrong. I said, what? There's not going to be no one there. He says, you'll be there. <laughs> yeah, but shouldn't I be teaching someone? And he said, good training for you. Whether there's one, nobody, or a million people, don't get caught up in numbers. Don't, be, don't get trapped in that. You just do the best you can, whether it's a, a stadium full of people or nobody. I said, well, that, that sounds right, but do I have to do this? He said, yes. So I was hoping someone would turn up. No one did, honestly. So picture five days. I gave the instructions to begin with. This, this we start like six in the morning. And we'd sit and walk. I'd ring the bell. I did the chanting in Korean and Chinese, which I didn't understand the word, but I did it anyway. Uh, I did 108 prostrations to begin before all that. I did that for years. And I had gray robes, big robes, and a little, uh, you know, bib. They don't call it a bib, but I am. <laughs> bib is for children, right? Okay. Um, and so I did that. When the time came uh, for Dharma talks, I gave the Dharma talk to no one, honestly. I chanted to nobody. I gave the Dharma talk to nobody. I led the sittings, and I did everything. Uh, and then even said, how about interviews? I interviewed myself. <laughs> said, yeah, uh, Larry, I think you're insane. <laughs> No, I'm just very, very wise and very, <laughs> no, I think you're a fool. Okay. So it was back and forth. And I, <laughs> so I'm not saying it totally freed me from being dependent on adulation and numbers, but these days the reign of quantity has come in in everything. It's, it's part of consumer culture. The first thing when you lead a retreat, someone will ask you is, how many people came? Uh, and you, you, if it's like, oh, 85, oh, that's great, great. Two people came. Well, the next time it'll be better. <laughs> you know, finally, it's about status, money, who knows what, spreading the, the, spreading the Dharma. I don't have any missionary instincts. If I did, I'd probably fall into that. I don't have them. I don't appreciate that approach to life. So I think to some degree it did help me get free of that. I can't say that I'm totally free of it. It's nice when people show up, but um, I learned a lot from no one being there, and I saw what he was getting at. Last one of Sansanim, because they were endless. He made mistakes. One of the most important things I learned, this isn't the last one, next to the last one, <laughs> maybe, okay. Uh, he wanted to start a center in a part of New York City, a Zen center, and I knew that area. I grew up in Brooklyn, and, and it was a, an area on 14th Street, full of crime, dangerous. It was, no one would want to come there. It was, you know, I said, and I begged him, a number of us did, Sansanim, this is not a good place for a Zen center. And he said, no, okay, every place is a good place. Oh, no, no, you get a whole Zen rap about it, you know. Okay, so uh, we started building it, and then, you know, there were, you know, people who were drunk, started walking, knocking, hey, man, you got some, you know. <laughs> and 
after about the third or fourth day, he just said, mind a little broken, mistake. He didn't speak very good English. Mistake, no good Zen center here, you're right. And he just packed up. He, didn't, he just immediately saw his mistake, dropped it, didn't waste energy beating himself up, and just moved on. We, did, we started somewhere else where it, it, I think it's flourishing to this day. Um, the last one, I accompanied him. We were flying to Korea. I was going to spend a, a year at Sudoksal Monastery, way up in the mountains, uh, in a three-month retreat there. And we're on the plane. First, you, you go to Japan first. We were going to stop off at some Japanese Zen monasteries mm -hmm. uh, and then go on to Korea. And I have my carry-on bag, and I'm sitting next to him, and we, the flight takes off, and I open it up. And he looks in there, and he said, what do you have in there? And I said, I looked, I showed him all these juicy Dharma books, you know, just the best. And he said, look, I got all these great Dharma books I haven't had time to read. And he said, no. He said, your big problem is you merely know everything. He said, no books, one year. I said, you're kidding, right? Now, some of you know, this is, I've read more about addiction, and it really is quite similar what I went through. He said, one year, you must promise me to read nothing. Just practice with yourself. And what I, go through the forms with, other, with monks. I was a lay person. Uh, and I guess I was, uh, I don't know, I was hungry for something because I said, okay. And for one year, I didn't. I really did not read one book. Now, this is the part that some of you would know and some of you may not know. If you, if you come with, from a New York Jewish intellectual background with a PhD and have been a professor for 10 years, can you try to imagine that asking that kind of a person to not read one book for a whole year is unthinkable? So I didn't. And did cravings come up? Uh, I don't think I went through the shakes, but... <laughs> no. But I, I was reading, some of you have heard this, so you can go to sleep for 10 seconds. <laughs> Ketchup bottles that were in English in Korea that said uh, citric acid, you know, uh, tomato sauce, uh, you know, then made in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, wherever it was. Oh, words. <laughs> uh, and I saw how much we worship words. We do. Okay. And it's not that dharma is against words, it's just putting it into its place, using it appropriately. So at the end of the year when I came back, I read now, it changed everything around. And it's such, you know, my, now it's, I don't need to read very much. I don't need to read, but from time to time it's enjoyable. Usually I don't read more than, you know, 20 minutes, half an hour. Some of the really good dharma books, one sentence, and it's so rich now that I can't get beyond the sentence. You know, it just fills me up. It's enough, because I see th the words are just a doorway, an aperture into something that's beyond words. Um, so that was, all these were very, very helpful for me. I think I, I could go on, quite honestly, including a few more where I was a fool. I think what I'd like to do now is I don't know most of you, and it's nice for me to extol Thanksgiving. And I think it is a wonderful human. When you are, show gratitude, for example, forgot about this one. When I was practicing at a Japanese Zen monastery, uh, 
and I had never seen this before, I saw Zen monks bow to the toilet. I saw them bow to their cushion. That's done routinely. And I saw them bow to the toilet, and I thought, this is crazy. But then I understood what they were saying. In a certain sense, everything is helping us. Uh, for example, suppose when you're on retreat, let's say you're going to do a retreat for a day long here, and there's no toilet or no toilet paper. Who's more important, me or the toilet paper? <laughs> you, you have a choice, me, my incredible teachings of the Buddha, or toilet paper. <laughs> oh, what do you think? Okay, so what they were doing is realizing that no one really does it by themselves. I mean, the final looking, of course you have to do it, but there's so many conditions that collaborate, and if you're fortunate, that come together and help us, not just in meditation, but in everything in life, that help something, a positive outcome come about, and also that produce a negative outcome. This is straight Buddha Dharma, the Buddha, cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect, karma, if you want a fancy word for it or a word for it. Um, so, I don't know, some of you may be going through a difficult time. Maybe you've had some losses in your life. Maybe you have no one to have a meal with tomorrow. Maybe there's, right now it's a difficult time because of um, you lost your job, or you're short on money, or all these words about gratitude and uh, flat and empty, and you can't connect. Um, Here's something that the Buddha did, and I've used it at times, only about two or three times in many years of teaching. Uh, he, I'll act it out. Say, some years ago, someone came in and around Thanksgiving time, and no matter how I try to do artificial respiration to give the person some hope, some, it went nowhere. The person was depressed, discouraged, all of that, and there was a lot going on, a, a serious illness, unemployment, etc. So this is not my original, I got it from the Buddha. The Buddha would say things, and I said this to his person, and I say them to you now, and it's good for all of us. It's not just if you can't grasp, get on to, gets, really connect with what's been said this evening. He said, can you, like right now, let me just do it. Can you all see me, everyone here? Can you see me? Can you see me? That means you have the gift of sight. There are millions of people all over the planet who are blind. They can't see. Did you hear what I just said? Did you hear what I just said? There are countless people who are deaf. They cannot hear a thing. Uh, when you leave here, maybe you have your walking is hampered, but can you move? Probably most of us can. Maybe all of us, you got here. Uh, there are people who are so crippled they can't move, etc. Can you all speak? Pretty soon we'll find out. I have a hunch all of you can. There are people who are mute. They have, do not have the power to speak. And so it's a reflection on whatever you think you don't have. Uh, there's some, there are many beauties in life that you do have that we take for granted or we don't value them at all. And it's a practice that goes well beyond Thanksgiving. Uh, in, in, words, in fact, as the practice ripens, matures, I think it's not just me, it's happened to other people that I've gotten to know over the years. Um, quite naturally, you start to appreciate the most ordinary things in life. It couldn't be more, tri in quotes, trivial. In fact, the word ordinary, I'm not using it as a, in a derogatory sense at all. Uh, somehow, 
you start realizing what it is to be alive. And it's, a, in my opinion, a privilege. It isn't, uh, but we don't feel that way because we're, we're on automatic pilot so much, routinized, and in a certain sense, deadened to ourselves because it has to start in here. The world is alive as it's ever going to be. It's, it's the heart that has dried up. And how can we help moisturize it? Not with Haushka products. You don't get it? Haushka is a, a very high quality, expensive facial cream, skin cream. All right. Does anyone know? Who doesn't know what Haushka is? You don't know what Haushka is. You can live a full life without it. <laughs> Not only that, you'll be much richer. <laughs> Out-of-pocket expenses are considerable. Okay. Okay. Um, why don't you stand up, move a bit, and then I'd like to... You don't have to, uh, to talk about how you're, you give thanks or anything of that sort. Whatever's on your mind, let's, uh, let's talk Dharma together. But uh, you've been sitting for quite a while. Why not just move just a few seconds? And those who have to leave... It's fine. Now, I just want to, the rules here are if you're going to stay, you can't leave. But I'd like to change them. I know that some of you have time. Maybe you have to get up early in the morning or get, uh, if you want to stay for like 10 or 15 minutes, but then you have to leave, it's not rude to get up and leave as far as I'm concerned. I won't take it that way. But let's, and let's get started for the amount of time we have. What those of you who are leaving don't realize is you can probably learn more from your fellow yogis than from me. Because your mind is not different than theirs or mine. Okay. What can we talk over together? And again, it's, I'm not limiting it to anything. Please. Yes, uh, if I could add just a little bit to that. Um, here, what we're emphasizing is relationship in daily life. Now, everyone agrees that everyone, you never hear a Dharma teacher say it's only just sitting. But it, it can become the biggest cliche in Dharma circles. Because, it, in it, look, what's, this is our icon, a gentleman with a nice look on his face. Of course, he's not alive, but he seems to be at peace. I have one in my backyard. Snow comes, rain comes, doesn't matter. But he's not, he's not alive. Okay, 
So what we're taking on intentionally, that's why we, it's no accident that the center is perched between Central Square and Harvard Square. I thought it was great, and we've, uh, many of you have heard this, but the first Dharma talk here I gave, and I had an ancient text from the, from the Vasudhi Maga, and then one from the Vamudi Maga, oh, 2,000 years ago. And they list where you should not start a meditation center. Uh, I think there were about 10 or so. We, qualif we, dis we were disqualified in eight out of the 10. In other words, there should not be a meditation center here because there's political activity and business and commerce and loud sounds and it's urban and it goes on. But that's exactly why we need it because for whatever reason, a large number of us don't want to become monks and nuns, but we really do want to pursue this. So we need a path that's appropriate for us. So what we're doing is we're turning things around a bad situation is a good situation. In other words, who, who could deny that relationship is very difficult? If you're alive and you don't know that, you haven't been in, no, you have to be in. There's no way to not be in a relationship. If you think you're not in one, you're in your head and you're in relationship to your head in some way that's not helping you. Hermits are, they're trapped with their past. So, um, yes, we're attempting to, it's the same teaching but we're attempting to shape it so that it can accomplish what the ancient teachings were designed to do, but not in quite the exact same way and much less formal, which is good for people like you. But some people do better with more form and want chanting, bowing, and all that, and it works better for them to a point. Yeah. This isn't for everyone is what I'm saying. Please. Can you hear back there? You can? Good. Words, Slightly louder, not much. The words, the yeah. words are, That's good. And getting caught up in words and interpretation of words and how much uh, healing can take place in just being still and, and watching the mind and how, I'll use the word brilliant, you know, the mind uh, can be when I say how brilliant the mind can be. What I mean is how brilliant the mind can be and how uh, we live better and we laugh more, we love more, we learn more, we give more. And um, we talked about our senses, you know, being able to have eyes, being able to hear, and being able to uh, just experience life the way we can and how abusive um, I've been with my senses, how I see things, and, and, and the organ that I most abuse is my mind. You know, uh, processing it unskillfully and not becoming master of it. And, and, and meditation for me is being able to become master of my mind instead of allowing what's in my mind to master me. Yeah. Sure. food and you know the thinking and causing myself just to be dis-ease with me and dis-ease with the world and just in the moment miserable and suffering and meditation has been a way for me to uh, liberate myself even if it's for a second you know, for a minute or an hour 
Yeah. Still on the Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, I would say the same thing. Um, I think the Buddha would say the same thing, because I, perhaps there's no one or very few human beings who don't start out not knowing about this. What's being taught here is not new. It's not like uh, I originated it or some uh, very smart people went to a think tank in Palo Alto, Stanford University, and they came up with this teaching. So there have been cultures that valued inner understanding more than, uh, I don't, I'm not against material. That materialistic spiritual dichotomy is useless. It's it caused a lot of trouble. But let's say they've been, had a high priority for inner understanding. We have a much higher priority for knowledge, conceptual understanding, and so forth. That's produced incredible things. Look at the technology we produce. But more and more as the technology becomes brilliant, wisdom has not grown in the same way, and compassion hasn't. And so you have an enormous gap between the power that technology and science has released, and, you, and it's the level of wisdom and compassion is puny. And that's a dangerous situation that the whole planet finds itself in right now. So we start with ourselves, as you're doing, and that's, and that's great. Uh, you know, sometimes, if I can elaborate on what you said, the practice is called the practice of liberation through non-clinging. And so most people think, well, the practice of liberation, like somewhere down the pike after 30 years of hard practice, there'll be like a Steven Spielberg special effect explosion, you know, and then you'll be liberated. Um, there are dramatic openings that come. You can't make them come. But what's being said is in a given moment when you're neither grasping nor pushing away and just sensitive, aware, without judging it to what's happening and then acting from that place, as you pointed out beautifully, um, that's a moment of freedom. You can feel the difference. It feels different. Maybe it's three seconds. Maybe it's 10 minutes. So th that, that starts to add up. Now, it's not our fault. Our parents, in the Buddhist language, were deluded. They did their best, and they produced more deluded people. And their parents produced them, even if they loved them, more than anything in the world. And so this level of ignorance is a human thing. All, and it's not, it's not exclusively Buddhism. And it was all authentic religion, I would say, not organized religion, the essence, is attempting to go deeper than where most of us settle in, expecting the accumulation of certain things to make life great. If we get more of this, more of that, more, 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 if it worked, we wouldn't be here. Some of us have succeeded at that. So, thank you. Doesn't anyone want to disagree with me or give me a hard time? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I won't disagree. Okay. Uh, I'm just thankful to be here. I was here uh, until 12 years ago, uh, quite frequently. I took the precept with you. And then I went back to Germany. And now I'm back here again, now with my whole family. Uh, the kids were born right after we returned to Germany. So now I have a whole family with me here, having worked. But being here is, is very special for me. And particularly one thing I kept all those years is uh, to work with the breath. Actually, I'm doing meditation for almost 20 years now. And people who know me and want to learn from me, which is not possible because I'm still a beginner, they all ask me, what is your technique? <laughs> so what is your teaching? What is your teaching? So what, what, and I say, well, it's the breath. It's still the breath. For 20 years, it's the breath. And I guess it will be the breath. 
for the rest of my life, I guess. So I will always stay a beginner. Um, and this is now you're bragging. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, go ahead. No, this, this is something that I learned or yeah. you facilitated this, and I'm very thankful. Yeah, uh, the Buddha used the breath to, get, to gain complete awakening. It begins with what seems to be a rather a wonderful but limited ability to calm down, which we all need. I haven't met anyone yet. But then it opens you up to the rest of what's happening. And it's like a great friend that's always available. So anyway, welcome back to paradise. <laughs> See how long, how long the honeymoon lasts. But our... Please. Yes. We all know that game, yes. <laughs> it's not going to happen that way. Well, it's significant because it, it almost feels like I already know who I'm going to be tomorrow when I'm just trying to be here. And um, I think that's where a lot of my suffering can come from is allowing the role-playing to continue. And, um, yeah, I just, that's where I'm at tonight in hearing you talk about fear as much yeah, if I could, because you're probably not alone. Uh, oh, Aunt Millie's going to be at Uncle Charlie. You know, oh, God, they're going to go start showing all these pictures of their kids, and I have to look excited. Oh, here he is almost smiling. Here he is smiling. Here he is. Isn't he intelligent? And he, uh, oh, yeah, he looks really smart. But he's got a kind of big head, but all right. <laughs> um, so maybe we all have some, uh, you know, um, practice would be, in other words, what I was getting at about relationship. Can you turn that around? You see, that's one of the reasons people become monks and nuns, is to get away from family, to get away from sex, to get away from food, to get away from a... Because those, we usually fail, but that doesn't mean we can't learn how to do it. But it does mean you have to want to learn how to do it. You have to really value that. I feel we have no choice. If you want to become a monk or a nun, more power to you. But you're not. It doesn't look like it. So this is our life. This is it. And so can we learn how to use these forms? So let's take yours. First of all, if we connect what both of you have been saying, all that stuff in your head, those are just thoughts about the future. Now, if you're, you can use the breath or not. If you become aware of those thoughts, you're gonna, you know what you're going to find out? They're just thoughts. That's all they are. Not only that, they're they are like poor little things that have, have no roots. They come blah, blah, blah. And if you don't feed them by identifying, either pushing it away or believing and identifying with it, it has no power on its own. It's just sort of, and then you'll get there and they're going to always ask you, well, how is your job? I mean, and, but if you just see it as something that arises and passes away, it's just a thought, 
That's what it is. It's no more, no less. As that starts to lose its power, then you come to that place of stillness and silence, and that's what we're getting at. Because that place is merely uh, big, <laughs> to put it mildly. And then it's not to leave the world out, it's stillness, silence, no words are really adequate, emptiness, Buddha nature, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's, there's something, that, that's where the real healing goes on, in my experience. And then can you bring that in? So your family can teach you much more than the Buddha or myself, because they're going to push buttons tomorrow, aren't they? We're well, already pushing them, but it's you doing it to you. Once you start seeing, that's what I mean. Who's going to help you with that? You're the only one who can do it. You realize, I'm creating a scenario, some of which I'm already suffering. You haven't even got, is it a plane you're flying there or driving there? A bus and a boat. <laughs> Here you are in Cambridge, and you're all, you might as don't go. I mean, it's already <laughs> yeah. So see it as an opportunity. In other words, the liberating power of relationship. And I'm not saying it's easy, but if you take it on, you'll fail mostly. Let's say tomorrow. You watch the mind, get to know you, you, the mind. That's what it means, self-knowing is that. And it loses its power as you become aware of it because it flourishes in darkness when it's not... Okay, um, so then you arrive, though, and then the buttons are going to get pushed. There's no question about it. And most of the time you will get sucked in. But if you understand how valuable it is to begin to learn how relationship is where most of our life is lived out, that if we can begin to become sensitive to what's going on, or has developed the ability to be with aunt, uncle, ma, pa, whoever it is, the, the buttons, no, the pushers of buttons, uh, while at the same time not losing touch with our inner life, that's a skill. It can be learned, but you're going to fail a lot at the beginning. If you don't get discouraged, you'll learn it, just like you've learned other things that you didn't learn immediately. And then life, that's where life and practice become the same thing and becomes much more natural and not formalized. It's not a technique or a method, but to begin with, it'll feel like that. So you're going to do it? Okay, and then you can let us know. I, yeah. Didn't you have something? Yes. So you already have a scenario written. <laughs> Why are you selfish? I don't get that. No, I can sound that way. I don't know. It feels as if I do something to get something in return, oh. which is not true, but still I, I'm hurt that the others aren't making an effort to see or to, yeah, to see me, even though I'm not obviously anywhere near perfect in seeing them, but I feel that I'm trying. So how do we deal with the world not really... <coughs> Yes. Um, that question, if you continue on this path or related ones, there are many paths. You have to find the one that works for you. There's, this one is good for some people, not for everyone. 
um, you're going to discover something, that you're going to live out your life in a world of non-meditators. If you're a vegetarian, you're going to see most of them eat fl animal flesh. Most of them believe in war as a solution, on and on and on. How can we maintain our sa sanity? I, I see the world as a, a very strange and in some ways insane place. But can we maintain our sanity in the face of this? But in this case, let's say it's neglect. I'm an expert on this subject. Really, I am, because the, fr uh, the first generation that came upon this was my generation. We were so thrilled about what we found that we couldn't stop delivering it to our families. And they did not want to hear all this stuff. Not, not the, and then it's even f to this day, I've been doing this for 40 years, my niece just visited. And she now has two children and a job teaching, and she's very interested in literature and, uh, and um, her marriage. And uh, for four days, nonstop about herself, did she ask me anything about myself? Nothing. <laughs> I'm a person, too. <laughs> In other words, get used to it. <laughs> uh, but use that again to, to, to wake up, because everything that that ha let's say they don't ask you anything about yourself, they don't see you, it produces a reaction. That's where the practice is, not endlessly psychologizing about it, or even dharma theorizing about it. It's in that given moment. That's the perfect, those are the perfect materials to practice with. Do you see what I'm getting at? It just hurts too much. It hurts a lot. Then that's what you look at. No matter what you say, you're not going to win in this chess match, I can tell you. No matter what you, even if you win, I'm going to say, you, how does it feel to be a winner? Do you see what I'm getting? What? Okay, and then, then we'll find out if it feels great, you'll get a, tend to get attached to it, and then it won't feel so great. Um, do you see what I'm getting at, though? I don't want to leave this until, because your situation is a familiar one to me. And the world, pieces of the world are changing, but they're not, most of the world is not changing necessarily in the way in which you want it to. Look, I think I have a pretty good marriage. We don't agree on a lot of things, and I just still don't understand why she doesn't agree with everything that I say. And, uh, why doesn't she like every film that I want to see? What's wrong with her? You know, what's wrong with her? Uh, because she's not me. She's someone else. Do you, do you see what I'm, so it actually can liberate you to understand that they're, they are the way they are. Now, if you can work on yourself, sometimes things change by their, on their own. For example... Um, I think this might help. My brother-in-law, take my brother-in-law. <laughs> yeah. you, you know all the punchlines. <laughs> he is a mathematician, was, or retired now, capital M, exclamation point, italicized, and he would say things like, speaking as a mathematician, you know, like, <laughs> we're just eating turkey, you know, like, <laughs> do we need to, we know you're a mathematician. Walter, you know. Okay. <laughs> so it was, let's just say it was an important part of his identity. Okay. So when I dropped out of the university, he was furious with me, really. And he, he, most of my family thought I went insane. I went sane. Not that there's anything wrong with university life, honestly. It's just for me, that was the right move. And it turned out I found what I really want to do, which is this, and I've loved what I've been doing for quite a few years. So 
he he was an estranged from me for almost ten years. You know, we'd meet and he would constantly bring it up, you know, like you couldn't find some way to stay in the university. You had a good job, you know, the University of California, whatever, whatever, and on and on, you know. Um, and I was doing what I, as best I could, what I'm suggesting you do. I didn't fight back or try to convince him because I tried that, it didn't work. And then I just absorbed it. And awareness can absorb it and it's like you recycle it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and, and then uh, some, a number of years ago, he came over to me and apologized. And he said, you know, Larry, um, my, I was so attached to being a professor. It meant so much to me. Holding on to that gave me a sense of worth. And I realized that your leaving, it was very threatening to me. Because that meant, well, maybe not every, because I saw it, what could be, within the Jewish community, you have to be either a doctor, a dentist, or a professor, or a very successful businessman. All right, an accountant. <laughs> or a lawyer. Or a law oh, I forgot that. I forgot that. Rabbi, is that coming back? Is there a comeback? <laughs> I come from 14 generations of rabbis. I thought that was over and done. I guess it isn't. All right. In my line, it is. Unless this is what it is. Maybe I'm a rabbi. <laughs> Help. <laughs> no escape. Um, so sometimes you're not trying to fix the other person or correct them, but just by the grace of just receiving it, and uh, they start to be able to learn about themselves, even though he's not on anything resembling this path, if you want to call it that. But the main thing is if you take care of yourself, everyone, in your, everyone who's involved in you will benefit one, one way or another. Yeah. Anyone else or something? Yes, please. Um, while I've been sitting here, I realized that this is the first year that I'm actually doing exactly what I want on Thanksgiving. Um, growing up in Canada, I, don't, I didn't have a strong emotional attachment. I don't to Thanksgiving, but I still spent about 40 years going to less than thrilling Thanksgiving dinners in the States. And this year... Some of us who were, grown, who were born here went through the same feelings, <laughs> but go ahead. <laughs> but this year I'm going to spend tomorrow with a few friends who I adore, my partner's going to some of his friends, and it seems perfect, and I don't feel like I have to do something. So, I just didn't realize how good I feel about it till I started listening to, to everybody who has to go home. <laughs> I mean, not that I don't miss my parents, but they're not alive, so I don't have any, and they don't even celebrate Thanksgiving, or didn't, so I, I don't know, I feel really good. Well, uh, I would say, sure, that's wonderful, but may I ask, do you do a meditation practice? I do. Whatever, what does that mean? Uh, it's a struggle. It's been a struggle for 25 years. But I recently, since the summer, have been listening to a Dharma teacher who was a meditator. And now she, she I, I've been trying to just be in the present moment, like all day long, pulling myself back into be here now, kind of. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be working really well for me. Yeah. I was just trying to connect, you know, I have to keep us on, t on, t on the subject. Right. 
So it's not just hearing, it's not a talk show where I'm feeling great, you know. Uh, so do you think all of that has helped you to be able to, to accept this freedom and to let everyone know, let your partner have his freedom and you have yours? And this is one of them? Yes. See, I'm looking for an endorsement. If I say this meditation is great, no one's going to believe me. I'm in the business. This is, this is how I earn my living. You shouldn't believe me. If you say it, then they'll perk up. What? That's a large part of meditation. A lot of wisdom is seeing is is negating uh, lack of wisdom, foolishness, or wrong decisions, wrong movements, etc. Oh, great! Thank you. Please, there'll be we'll have time. Yes. Thank you for writing the new book. Oh, you haven't read it, have you? This is like, like uh, uh, Downton Abbey. This is uh, part three. <laughs> what? Oh. Oh, endorsement of our practice. Yeah. But in other words, you're endorsing the book. Yeah. In other words, that's good because then some of the new people may buy it and then I can take my wife out to dinner. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. Um, it is a it's, it is in continuity with it from it. In other words, if you if if you could relate to breath by breath, then this takes off from it and it's based on a lot that's gone. A lot of what I learned is from teaching people uh, people like us. Yeah. yeah. But you know you'll you'll see enough. Uh, there's a uh, do you have, do you get a magazine called Shambhala Sun? Yeah, all right. They have a selection from it. You can see if it's relevant. This issue? Yeah, the newest issue, yes. I don't know. I don't get it. Yeah, I don't get it, so I don't know. Yeah, please. Uh, I just wanted to follow up on something you had said. Sure. Two turns ago, or three turns ago, the lady asked. Um, in terms of... Uh, reacting to or not feeling that someone's acting the way you want, for example, responding the way you want, right? And, and in her case, it was under appreciation. There's a lot of things, right? Um, one thing that I sometimes, I guess, I don't know, struggle with in terms of your, what, your response, in terms of being aware uh, and uh, kind of taking, I don't know the word, ownership or something over, over your feelings or being aware of it. But there's also an element of, of right action, right? There has to be an element of, sometimes, not always, of, of acting on, on your response, right? So first, Absolutely. I think the boss is being aware, but at some point, you have to decide on something. Sometimes it's, like you talked about with, with, with Walter, like stopping to respond, but at times, you have to respond, right? And so where, it sounds like you were, were proposing or, or supporting the idea of being of being very very aware, but um, but like I said, uh, I understand. Yeah. Um, see, wh what's left out is that uh, 
when we talk about these things, it leaves the impression that it's a static thing. Let's say we're reacting a good deal of the day. It's not necessarily negative. In other words, but by a reaction, it means we have a history of conditioning. You were brought up a certain way, etc. So you respond to everything. You can't help it. You react. I'm going to use the word react. You react. It's mechanical. It's conditioned. It's out of your control. Uh, when you start to live a life of self-awareness, you're going to start to see this, that it's like a, a computer that's programmed again and again and again. And often we think it's spontaneous. But you'll see it isn't really. It's just a, a program slightly modified, repeating itself in certain situations in certain ways. Okay. So um, what this introduces now is to become aware of your reactions. Now, the way I described it, it sounds like just this inner stuff. And you're, getting, you're connecting it to social life, which is imperative. Because we do have to make, we have to act. We have to make decisions. So what happens as you become more able to become aware of your reactivity, the reactivity loses its power. In, uh, in fact, when the practice starts to really ripen, you'll have extended periods of time that are just clear. Now, what can come out of, uh, let, let me formulate it so that it's. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.